Amen. You can grab a seat. If you've got a copy of the Scripture, it's going to be in 1 Corinthians. We're going to start in chapter 8 and kind of work our way through 10 today. So we're covering a lot of ground. Uh, if you've got a copy and you can turn or tap your way there, it'll be really helpful. You can see where we're going. Maybe you can make little notes and go back to it later today and read up on some of the places that we don't get to spend as much time. Uh, if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you one on your way out. Uh, we would be honored to give you a Bible in a modern English translation. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And as we continue this series on 1 Corinthians, we're trying to address a lack in sort of just the Western world, which is this individualism that looks past what it is to be together. I think we think of our life now as an individual sport, not a team sport. And that's just not right. It's not Christianity. Christianity is a team sport. I think a lot of you, if I pressed you, would grant me that premise that Christianity is a team sport. We're supposed to do this together. As soon as you get done with love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he comes right at you with a love of your neighbor as yourself. That command's just right there. You can't get away from it. And yet, if it's a team sport, I don't know how many of us are playing that way. It's possible to play a team sport as an individual. Do you know what I mean? Uh, when I was growing up in high school, I played against a guy who became an NBA, like, great. Uh, he was a six-foot-nine guy named Corey Brewer. You may have heard of him. Um, and he was phenomenal. Like, he was really, really, really good. Because there's big, and then there's big and athletic. Uh, I know what it is to be big, but nothing about the second part. This guy was athletic first and also six-foot-nine. And he was just a wonder to behold. And can I tell you, we played him. They were in our county, but a different part, and yada, yada. We would play him once a year. And every time we'd play him, we'd beat him. We were not that good. But every time we'd play that team, we'd beat him. Do you know why? Because they would take us in the locker room beforehand. Coach would say, listen, guys, Corey, he's going to score 50 points. We just have to score 51. And he was right. Corey was going to score 50 points. It was unbelievable what he was able to accomplish. But as a team... You know, I might score six, Kyle might score 12, old Jake, he might get 14, wow, you know, and somebody else might get a couple here and there, and all of a sudden, we get 52 points, you know who wins? Yeah, our junky little team would beat Corey Brewer, because even though it was a team sport, he was kind of, and God love him, you know, he has found phenomenal success. <laughs> There's no question, uh, he left that little county in that high school basketball setting, and though we won and we beat him then... Uh, he went on to two national college championships and then a lucrative professional NBA career. So it's not like we're laughing now and, you know, he's wishing he was more like us because <laughs> he's him and I'm me. But it, it stands to reason that you can't play a team sport as an individual. And within the Christian faith, while a lot of us pay lip service to the fact that we're all in this together and that we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, I don't know how many of us really internalize, how many of us really commit to the idea that I want to get these people across the finish line. It's not enough to just get me across the finish line of the Christian faith. To, to end my life and say, I have finished the, I fought the fight, I've finished the race. That's not enough. Biblically, love demands that you care almost as much, as much, 
The example from Paul and Moses is more than whether or not you get across the finish line, that others that you love get across that finish line. When we say church, worth the mess, we're not just talking about show up more regularly. We're saying, is it worth it for you to look into the eyes of the people in this room and say, I am willing to bleed to make sure that you finish the race of Christianity? Wow. That requires a lot of time. That requires a lot of sacrifice. That requires making your life about somebody else that doesn't actually benefit you. It just benefits them. How do we get there? Well, look at how Paul starts 1 Corinthians 8. He just finished talking about marriage and singleness. Thank you, Nick, for that incredible message last week. And then he jumps into another topic, and it sounds like something totally different, but it's totally in, in flush with, right in line with everything he's been talking about so far. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay, so he's starting by addressing this topic, this idea of food offered to idols and whether or not this matters, how this matters and how it affects the people that are engaging with this topic. And he introduces these two sort of categories of love and knowledge. Love for the other, knowledge for the self. What's the difference? Love builds up, knowledge puffs up. It goes right in with everything we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians so far. The idea that your ego gets puffed up, gets distended out, gets blown out of proportion in your pride. You become this sensitive, difficult, and not really true thing. Knowledge, theology, can puff up. Oh man, interesting. And he starts trying to build this category of how it is possible to be right and to be wrong. To be somebody who's right, and we love to be right. I love to be right all the time about everything, but I have to be right about theology. Not many of you should become teachers because teachers are going to be judged more harshly. On what? On that. Are you preaching the right thing? Am I going to tell you something that's going to lead to your death rather than life? Am I saying what he has said or am I saying what I think? Oh, God help us. But it's not enough to just be right. There's a difference here. There's something that we have to go further into. And, and Paul kind of lays out this thing that I think for a lot of us seems like not that big of a deal. I don't know that we relate to it that well. We don't have a category for meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. But Paul goes really far with it over the next couple of chapters by saying it's not just about whether or not you get this right. It's about whether or not you care about the brothers and sisters that are around you getting across the finish line. And if you don't, Let's put it into terms that we all understand and care about. If you don't, we have to wonder whether or not you're going to get across the finish line. Okay, he starts by talking about the idolatry of the poor pagans to the Jews. And then by the time he's done, he's talking about the idolatry of the Jews, leading them away from the one true God. So see if you can follow this. We're going to start by talking about the situation. I'm going to try and explain it as well as I can, as quickly as I can. Then... 
We're going to talk about some signs of this idolatry, signs that we're not doing what God has called us to. And then I want to finish with the solution. All right, here we go. Starts with the S's, so maybe you'll remember. Situation, sign, solution. Situation. What was going on in Corinth and really in the pagan world at that time is that pagan religion would um, receive many sacrifices. Animals sacrificed to, you know, Zeus, Athena, all these different gods, Artemis. Whatever the god was, they would have these animals that would be sacrificed to them. The meat from those animals would then be processed and sold. You might get some of it for, you know, the sacrifice that you made, but the temple might also take some of it and sell it into markets, like meat markets that you would take home and cook. Sell it into banquet halls, like restaurants. Sell it to just anybody. So if you wanted meat in Corinth, chances were it was meat that had been sacrificed to another god. Now, the Jews heard that, and they responded with really right theology, which was, who cares? Those things aren't real. So if they want to say they're hocus-pocus and do their magic over it, it's not real and it doesn't matter. Enjoy the meat. Be happy that it was probably at a better price or, you know, whatever. They, they looked at it and said, ha-ha, it doesn't matter. And this is what Paul reflects. He says in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know... And here he's quoting because he's, he's telling them the argument that the Jewish Christians were making to the Gentile Christians about this food offered to idols. He said, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, again, using quotes, describing many that set themselves up as God or as Lord. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. And there's a part of you that thinks, well, he said for us. So he's just talking about the kind of religion that we're very comfortable with in America, which is very individualized. But look, no, he doesn't say that. He then says, from whom are all things and for whom all exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are, are all things and through whom we exist. So he's very clear. Yeah, you're right, theologically. There really is only one God. And so to your, your pagan neighbor who has come to Christ, but they spent their whole life in the worship of a false God, if they see you or, or you come to your house and you serve meat that was sacrificed to that idol, there's a part of them that is nervous. That there's a part of them that feels that they are dishonoring the new Jesus, that the, the new God, this Jesus that they have started to follow by going back to a practice that honored their old God. It's not just meat that goes in their mouth and goes through their body and is expelled. It's in fact something that, that touches their heart because they remember when it was full worship of a false God. What was happening was that the Jewish Christians, not just Jewish meaning they still followed like the ancient ways. I just mean that they are people who come from a Jewish background and have now accepted Christ there in Corinth. They look at the Gentiles who have these scruples and they laugh at them. They laugh at them the same way we might laugh at people in the medieval times with witches. This isn't actual medievalism. Actually, read medievalism. You'll be impressed by their wisdom. But the fake kind of cartoon version, the Monty Python version, where they want to burn the lady because she's a witch. And why is she a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. And they all stop and look at him because clearly he's not a newt. And he goes, I got better, you know. <laughs> oh, ha, 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 ha. And we all laugh at the idiots who think this lady could actually be 
a witch. That's what the Jews were doing. They were laughing at these Corinthians who thought, yeah, I know she's got a big building. I know there's a big image of her, but Artemis isn't real. Athena isn't real. These are the make-believes. These are the fairy tales. These are the stories of the Greeks and the Romans. Of course it's not real. <laughs> and they, they, they dismissed the very real scruple of somebody who grew up in the worship of that false god and is now trying to serve Christ. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, I know you're right. Yeah, of course you're right. They're not real gods. God is God. And yet you're also not right. You're right in the argument, but you're wrong before God. He says in verse 9, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. They were saying, in effect, to the other believers in their church, I'm right, you're wrong. Grow up or go to hell. Now, do you think they would ever say it like that? Well, no, of course not. You don't want to sound mean. <laughs> but do you understand how their actions were saying exactly that? Grow up, understand that this doesn't matter and that this, your conscience needs to get stronger, or go to hell. I'm going to eat my meat. I'm going to enjoy this thing that I know by God's grace I'm allowed to have. And if you just take that and try to apply it to our situation. You maybe have a little bit of difficulty. I don't know that there's an obvious answer to what this is in our culture without doing a little bit of work. I think growing up when I heard this preached, we would talk about alcohol. There are people that, that take alcohol and they go really far with it. So would I then do something that for them is going to be sin and make it more difficult for them to not sin? I mean, alcohol, we say biblically, is, is allowed, but drunkenness isn't. So how much alcohol can you drink before it becomes drunkenness? I mean, probably not that much. You know, it's, there's, there's stuff to be figured out there. So would you be willing to give up your very real right to some level of alcohol if it meant that your brother or sister didn't have something that they stumble over in their movement towards the Lord. Now, I think that's a real application of these verses, but I, I just don't think it's all of the application of those verses. See, Paul goes way further in chapter 9, and he doesn't just talk about idols or alcoholic drink, because he does talk about food, meaning these idols and the meat that was sacrificed to idols, or drink, which I would have to think means alcoholic drink. Paul goes way, way further. He starts saying that in his life, not only would he abstain from certain food or drink if it meant that other people would come to Christ, in his life, he didn't even marry. Now, there's some things we can talk about about his history, and he was a Pharisee, so was he married, and maybe he's a widower, and he didn't, whatever. You just read chapter 7, if you were here with us in chapter 7. Paul is very clear. He is an unmarried man for the purpose of the kingdom of God being advanced. And if you get married, hey, that's great, but you got to take care of your lady friend. You can't just go skipping off to start a new mission in Philippi. Paul could, and he gave up a lot of comfort, and he gave up a lot of pleasure in doing that. He gave it up even if Peter didn't. 
Now, we know Peter was married, so it's not like he was supposed to divorce her and go be an apostle or whatever, but he's saying Peter is allowed to take his believing wife along with him on all of this mission that he's doing. Am I and Barnabas, are we the only ones that aren't allowed to have that kind of comfort? We have to take care of ourselves in that way. He went on and he said, not only that, but he worked a second job to support himself financially for large and very difficult parts of his ministry. And he's very clear that he doesn't have to. I'm going to stress that point. You're not wrong for supporting me financially. He was saying that he gave up the right to be supported financially by the people that he was ministering to in order that a stumbling block might be removed from some to receive the gospel. Now we have a huge category for what might fit into the application of don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols. Don't put a stumbling block before the people. He is being very clear here that we have to do whatever it takes to get as many people as possible to Jesus. That is a totally different category. Here's what he says, verse 19 of chapter 9. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being one outside of the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. I like that. That's a really clever thing he does there to make sure that we say, you know, okay, <laughs> law of Moses, not law of Christ. But to the weak, I became weak that I may win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. He is saying, this is what love looks like. This is what it takes to look at other people and be willing to do whatever it takes that those people might get to Jesus. Think about whether or not that describes your experience of church life. We go out of our way to make it easy to come here, to enjoy, and to go home hopefully full. Yeah, you get a donut, but I mean like full in your heart, full in your, in your relationships to people and to the Lord. We try to take out all the stuff that might make that difficult. And yet, if we do that, is there a category of Christianity that doesn't really require a lot of discipline? Is it possible for you to flip from what Paul is describing to something more like a consumer? Where you're here to be served rather than to serve. Read this and tell me if this is what your Christianity looks like. Paul says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What is that level of discipline that he's talking about? He's talking about discipline that says no to sin and yes to righteousness. Amen. But he's also talking about discipline, disciplining himself in order to not have the people of Corinth have to pay him financially. 
in order for him to not go and get married to somebody and have her take care of him and have him be able to say, guys, I'd love to take care of you right now, but you know, I need a date night. He's talking about discipline that goes above and beyond so that he can show love in a caring way to those that God has called him to to minister to. Do you have a category for that level of sacrifice for the other people in this room? For the other people that aren't yet in this room? If you don't, and this is where Paul starts to make a turn here, and then he starts to be very clear in chapter 10 that it's really not just your concern for other people, it's also actually comes back to your relationship with the Lord and who you are really. That if you don't have a desire, and it may even just be a desire for a desire, much less a practice, but a desire to see other people also get across that finish line, to stay up a little later, to wake up a little earlier in order to pray for your brothers and sisters, to maybe give up a job opportunity in order to stay in a city longer, to care for the same group of people more effectively. Sounds crazy. Why would you ever do that? Well, because of love. These are signs that there may be a more difficult and a more real problem. That what you have maybe isn't just a little bit of a lack of love and instead is is maybe idolatry. Because that's what Paul does. He starts by talking about the Gentiles and how the Jews need to love them better. Then he talks about his own example. And then in chapter 10, he starts to describe how the Jews themselves, though seeming to have right theology, might be tempted to embrace the idolatry that they're tempting their Corinthian brothers and sisters with. He talks about how when Moses first brought the people out of Israel, they set an example for us. They set an example, unfortunately, that was a negative example, an example of what not to do. So we talk about the situation, and here are some of the signs of what idolatry might look like in our lives. He said that we might not desire evil as they did. Part of the reason that Moses and Aaron have to constantly corral the people of Israel is because they really want what God says no to. Brothers and sisters, do you want, I pray to God that you've like disciplined yourself away from the action, but do you still have the desire for things that God hates? This is where things sound a little bit like the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus doesn't just say don't commit adultery. He says don't even desire a woman who's not your wife. When he says don't don't murder, well, yeah, great, don't murder people, please, (laughs) please. Uh, But also... Don't hate them in your heart. That's just murder without much, you know, like skill. <laughs> I want to do it. I don't know how, you know. Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't make you innocent. He's saying here that they, they desired evil, that they actually then, then did become idolaters, that they literally made a golden cow as an idol to go out and worship instead of Yahweh. I mean, we've talked a lot about idolatry. I, I think you can understand that there are places in your life now that maybe doesn't sort of have a, a physical sort of like emblem in the same way as a golden calf was for them, but does replace God in your affections, does replace God as the place where you get your satisfaction and your security. It becomes something else that you worship. He describes how they indulged in sexual immorality as some of them did. Now, there was, there was a moment where the people of Israel under Moses, they rebel against God 
by worshiping Baal, 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 however you want to say it, this Old Testament idol. And the way that you would worship him is through ritualized prostitution with the women of Midian. The people of Israel did that. And you say, wow, gross. Okay. Don't you remember what we've talked about about sexual immorality? Culturally, you have every option to do the exact same thing that they did. Do you? He talks here about how we must not put Christ to the test. This is a refusal of the gifts that he gives and a desire to turn back to the gifts of the world. (laughs) Wow! I, I hope that you have enough sort of honesty about yourself to see that maybe that one's there too. Attorney, you're testing Christ in the sense of you're refusing his gifts that he gives and have a desire to go back to the meat pots of Egypt, to go back away from what he's given to the things that he's actually saved you from. That's in your heart, brothers and sisters. That's a sign that you might have these same problems. Lastly, he talks about grumbling. Is there any grumbling in your life? Is there anything other than grumbling in your life? (laughs) I mean, it's funny to grumble. It's funny to grumble funny, like to make it funny in the way that you talk to somebody else about it. But when you peel back the funny, is the heart of what your comment was really a grumble? You can grumble about a lot of stuff. Do you grumble about me? That's fine. I'm terrible. But I'm also a pastor of this church. So there's a point at which you got to be careful. Do you grumble about us as pastors? Do you grumble about the structure of Hope Church? Be careful that you're not making real observations about things that could be done better and instead jumping into accusation of God for the gifts that he's given you, the church that he's made you a part of. Not trying to quell real feedback. Bring it on. But I am trying to tell you that when they grumbled, the Lord killed them. Paul is setting this up as an example, and he's setting it up as a warning. Woe be it to me if I don't tell you about the warnings. And then he brings it all together. He says, okay, these are signs that there may be something wrong. What do we do about it? If you're like me and you read through those signs, you get really, really scared because those signs are in your life. You need the solution. You need God to give you a way out. And so he gives us verse 13 of chapter 10, which is one that you must memorize. Memorize John 3.16. Memorize Psalm 23. Memorize Psalm 16. We're going to talk about Psalm 16. Memorize 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. One of the chief lies of the enemy is, hey, man, it's not my fault that I'm about to do this because I can't say no to this. Yes, you can. You can't. He can. He has given you. He's faithful. He has given you that way of escape. The Lord is very clear. There is a way out. You don't have to be an idolater. You can flee it. And in fleeing it, you can embrace again a gospel that leads to the love that looks around to other people and becomes like Paul. Willing to pray in Romans 9 that he could give up his salvation that God might save the rest of Israel. 
So what's the solution? The solution is not to be better or do better. The solution is to love the Lord who saved you. What's the solution for idolatry? The solution for idolatry is to love the Lord. Okay, so Psalm 16. If you've been around Hope Church, Psalm 1610, uh, Psalm 1611, it's my life verse. I love it. I bring it up as much as I can. But as I'm meditating on the whole of Psalm 16, it sounds at first like it's just sort of a hodgepodge of different ideas. Or it's a prayer that God would protect the guy who's praying it, probably David, from like his enemies. That's how it starts. It says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And that sounds like every other psalm that we hear about him praying that God would save him from the Philistines or that God would save him from crazy Saul. But as he continues, he does not say, preserve me from my enemies. He says, preserve me, for you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Understand as he goes here that he's creating two different camps. There's a thing that he wants and a thing that he doesn't. The thing that he doesn't is what he's praying to be preserved from. The thing that he does is the thing that he's affirming in things like, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. He's trying to be preserved from thinking that there is good apart from the Lord. Do you understand that that's what idolatry is? It's looking to something else and saying, I know God hates that, but he must be wrong because it's really good. No. Scripture is abundantly clear. Pleasure comes from God. And you go, no, no. Sin is great. It's super pleasurable. It's the church that's a little bit boring. Okay, yeah, sure. But do you understand that the pleasure you find in sin wasn't created by the enemy? It was distorted by the enemy? He reduced it to the smallest amount he possibly could so that you would take the bait and do what God has commanded you not to do or not to do in that way or not to do at that time or not to do in that amount? No, be clear. All pleasure, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. All the pleasure is coming straight from him. And David is praying that God would preserve him from thinking there is pleasure anywhere else. He goes on to verse 4 to say, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Why the heck is he talking about that? Because that's the temptation. That's the temptation to go after something else. And he talks about what it actually looks like. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Instead, he models for us what it is to be a believer. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. If you not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What's he saying? He's not just saying, mind your P's and Q's, be better, care about your fellow man. He's saying, God, I love you. Don't let me love anything else like I love you. And if he really does love the Lord, then he can be like Paul, who doesn't need to be better than the people that he's around. He doesn't have to win. He's already won because Christ won. And God has just given him this new identity. He's given them this perfect love. He's given him this relationship with the God of the universe. He doesn't have to be a super apostle. He doesn't have to be impressive despite Cephas or Apollos or Christ. 
He just gets to be a servant. He just gets to bleed for these other people. He gets to discipline himself in order to joyfully sacrifice so that other people can come to know the Lord, that other people can finish the race. So that he can then say, verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Not because he's awesome, because he has stopped idolatry and taken a step into love. Listen, when we say worth the mess, we're not just saying, please try to be more consistent on Sunday mornings. Not saying less than that, but we're saying a whole lot more. What we're saying is, don't consider Hope Church to be a Sunday morning activity. What we're saying is, examine your heart and understand if you actually even know Christ. Because if you do, He is going to be driving you towards the love of these other people. The one of the verses I skipped in Psalm 16, it seems so confusing. But he says, as for the saints, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. What? Aren't you praying against idolatry? Didn't you just say Jesus is the one that's giving you pleasures forevermore? Yeah. And when you love the Lord, you start loving other people, baby. So when we say come to church, go to community group, care, that's your application. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and find that he leads you to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we have totally failed you. We've failed on this one in about every way I think that we can because we've reduced. Lord, when I talk to people and they tell me they're leaving Hope Church and they tell me why, there's never even a thought that I would have a response to that or that maybe it wasn't a right decision. Lord, as soon as people decide that there's something better for them, it's immediate. And I don't know that they're wrong, Father. You call people all over the place. We're not God over people. You are. And we should never judge another man's servant. And yet, I think, Father, that we as people are guilty of idolatry and making other things more important than you. When we do that, Lord, the effect is that we see other people as disposable as those that we want to be puffed up over, rather those that we want to build up through love. Lord, please continue to change our minds. Please saturate us with your love so that we're able to look up from worldly desires, Father. We're able to say instead that we have set you before us, that you are our chosen portion, that the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, and indeed we have a beautiful inheritance. Please woo us away from our idols, Father. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.